is Richard Schwartz. Hi, Dick. Hi, Serge. So, your work is called Internal Family Systems. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give you the uh, elevator version. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a way of working with parts of people, subpersonalities, uh, but using systems thinking to understand how they relate to each other and then also bringing to bear what I call the self in a client to become a kind of internal leader uh, of these parts. And over the years of doing this, we've found ways to help parts out of the extreme roles they're forced into by what happens in people's lives. So, uh, in other words... Um taking each person and within each person considering the various parts we have as some kind of a family and approaching the dialogue and the interactions inside this family in a systems mode the same way you would um, approach family therapy. Exactly. I'm trained as a family therapist. I have a PhD in that. And I stumbled into this world with clients in the early 80s uh, when I was frustrated with not getting, being able to get the results I wanted in an outcome study with just external-only family therapy. And I began, in a kind of blind way, asking clients about why they kept doing what they did. In this case, it was bulimia. And they basically taught it to me, and they talked a lot about these different parts and how these parts related to each other inside of them. And as I listened to all that, it sounded like, a family structure inside, and there were parts in, in roles that corresponded in some ways to some of the kinds of families I was working with. So I began to just explore what would happen if I tried to understand these inner systems as systems and also tried to use some family therapy technique to intervene into them. Okay, so if if it's okay, maybe we can stay with uh, an example of, say, somebody who does something like bulimia or another example, and to see what these roles might be, uh, you know, because you're talking about this kind of uh, inner conflict that's experienced as different parts fighting against each other. Yeah, well, when I was interviewing the bulimic kids, they they would say things like, when something bad happened in the outside world, it would trigger this inner critic who would attack them and call them names, and then that would trigger a part that would make them feel totally worthless and bereft and young and empty. Mm-hmm. And that, that experience was so dreadful that in would come the binge part to the rescue to try and get them out of that feeling. But the act of the binge itself would trigger the critic again, who would, and that would bring up that worthless feeling again. So... It sounded like these circular sequences of interaction I'd been studying in families. Yeah. And uh, in the beginning, because I made the mistake that most psychotherapies make, I tried to encourage my clients to fight against the critics and the control the binge parts and, and found that that only made them stronger. And so it was through trial and error like that that we learned that the best way to work with these parts is to try and understand them and uh, and then help them out of the roles they're stuck in and found also that a lot of the, the troublesome parts are protecting clients 
are protecting other very vulnerable parts. So I want to just go a little slower for people who are not accustomed to this kind of work because there's a lot in that is um, what you're saying is that you know what most of us do almost instinctively is uh, when we detect an inner critic in a client uh, we try to help the client fight against this inner critic and exactly. yeah and instead of that using the model of uh, partly is just from pragmatic learning we're working with clients but in a way that fits the model of working in a system with say a couple uh, you're not using one part against the other. You're not trying to silence one person or one, but you're trying to understand the roles. Yeah, and as you, as you, I'll, I'll tell you uh, <clears throat> the, the case that turned my head around about the whole phenomenon. I was working with a a bulimic kid who also cut herself because she'd been sexually abused, and I was trying to get <clears throat> the cutting part to cut it out, to stop doing that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just I was working on the part, and I'd have her talk to the part and badgering it to to just stop cutting her. And finally, the part in one session agreed not to do it. And then, of course, I opened the door to the next session, and she's got a big gash in the middle of her face. Mm-hmm. And I just collapsed at that point and said, "You know, I can't beat you with this. I, I give up." And the part softened and shifted and said it didn't want to beat me at it. And then I became curious about why it did it. Wow. And once I was curious the part, and the part wasn't threatened, it proceeded to tell me how important it was when she was being abused to get her out of her body and to contain the rage that would have hurt, gotten her more abuse. Mm-hmm. And so then I shifted once again from not just being curious but now having a kind of appreciation and compassion for this part and the heroic role it had played in her life. Yeah, yeah. And then it, then it proceeded to tell me how it couldn't stop cutting her as long as these other parts were still so vulnerable. And it was protecting her in different ways. And so it became clear that for it to change, we had to do some other things first. Hence the system's idea that just like a kid in a family can't change unless you change some of the relationships that it's caught up in. The same is true for these parts. So with a lot of parts like that, we don't go to them expecting to change. We go to learn what they're protecting and then get permission to go to that and heal that. Yeah, yeah. and it's an almost dizzying series of realizations you described where uh, that part uh, was actually protecting, was actually saw itself as protecting and just was able to uh, connect with you and explain once it was no longer threatened. And, yeah. Yeah, so uh, through experiences like that over and over, we've learned now that uh, we don't fight any parts and we, we really just try to get to know them and learn their secret histories. And, and most of them are frozen in time. They're kind of stuck in the past. And uh, they act as if, what happened then is still happening. So they they live in this kind of uh, edge-of-their-seat kind of existence. So we've also learned now that it's important to witness what happened and then have the client go in and get the parts out of where they're stuck back there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other <clears throat> big discovery as I was fooling around like this was 
as I got some certain parts to separate, clients would automatically enter a state in which they could do a lot of the stuff that I just was talking about on their own or, or in my presence, but I didn't have to lead or guide them. Mm-hmm. And they would manifest spontaneously and often suddenly simply by getting other parts to separate from whoever was left. They would manifest these great qualities like pure curiosity or compassion or calm, all these C-word qualities, yeah. Um, yeah. confidence. And when I would ask about who is that, what part is that, they'd say, that's not really a part, that's who I really am. So in this model, not only do we get to know parts, but we, we first try to get the person in this state that I now call the self, with a capital S, mm-hmm. and have them be the ones to interview the parts and have the parts come to trust as a leader that in most cases uh, these parts don't really believe exists. They, they didn't know about sometimes. Right. So, But so in a way, uh, it's almost literally um, getting the parts to stand in the person's own way in order to find, you know, who the self truly is. Well, to get them to stand out of the person's way, to, to separate. Yeah, to separate. To yeah. step aside, right. Uh-huh. Yeah, and once they do, what I call self spontaneously emerges in everybody, even your most severely disturbed clients, as part separate. That's the magic of the of the discovery, that it's in everybody, and it's just beneath the surface of these these wild parts. And that the parts themselves aren't what they seem. They carry what I call burdens, which are extreme emotions and beliefs that they accumulated through experiences in your life. And those burdens are what drive their extremes. And once they feel really witnessed in terms of where they got the burdens and retrieved from where they're stuck in the past, they can actually unload these extreme beliefs and emotions and then they transform into their naturally valuable states. And it's the self who does the witnessing primarily and interfaces with the parts in IFS. Right. So you're, you're not only are you not trying to get rid of the uh, uh, supposedly bad parts, but you're not actually so much interacting with them as uh, preparing and making it possible for the self to deal with them from that calm, compassionate place. Exactly. Yeah, it's once in a while I'll talk directly to a part, but most of the time it's my client self talking to the parts. And the reason that we uh, emphasize that is because healing involves a couple different processes, one of which is the release of these burdens that I call uh, these emotions, beliefs, and energies. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of some of the body-centered kinds of models that can achieve unburdenings uh, sometimes. But I think IFS is is one of the only models that uh, achieves the, the second kind of healing in such a direct way, which for me is what I call the restoration of trust in self-leadership. Mm-hmm. The parts come to trust that they don't have to do everything now because there's this great leader inside that can that can run things. 
Right. And so that's very related to that sense that what caused the parts in the first part, in the first uh, instance, is the sense that they had a burden to carry because they needed, they were needed. And there is maybe a sense of protectiveness or a sense of, uh, um, uh, you know, need to do something that's, that's well-intentioned. Exactly. So, so we're trying to relieve them of the responsibility, the protectors anyway, that they've carried. Mm-hmm. The other class of parts are what we call exiles, who are uh, the very, very vulnerable parts that, that often carry uh, or, or are the most hurt by whatever traumas or, or attachment injuries you suffered. And because they carry all of the memories, sensations, emotions, and beliefs from those experiences, we tend to lock them away and try not to ever re-experience any of that. So we all have these exiled parts that, that are stuck in these these scenes that we don't want to have to think about again or recall and that carry all this toxic stuff. And and so we're afraid of being contaminated by them. So, for instance, what, what would that be? What would such an exile be? Well, I happen to work uh, a whole lot with uh, survivors of severe sex abuse. So um, many of my clients have parts that are locked in those kinds of scenes and and uh, carry all the shame and the, the terror and the, the sense of worthlessness from all of that. And so, but that's an extreme example. Mm-hmm. We all have had humiliations in our lives or uh, have bad relationships with parents. And, and so the parts that are most hurt by those experiences are often the ones that will lock away that way. And then the protector's goal is to keep our lives on a course that never touches those parts so that nothing like whatever happened before will happen to us again. Mm-hmm. And so they're often trying to control everything and and uh, control our bodies, too. I mean, at some point we should talk about the body, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so the tr- they're trying to control how much we feel. And they're trying to control how we look and how we perform and then how close we get to anybody and so on. So they're often those critics. Those critics are often parts that are criticizing us to try and keep us safe in different ways. Yeah. These we call, this is a class of protector we call managers. They're trying to manage our lives so that our exiles never get hurt and never explode with the, all the emotion that they carry. So the exile really gets a sense of, uh, you know, the, the, the word carries the, the feeling of um, somebody who is exiled from consciousness because it would be too painful to deal with. Yeah, exactly. And the manager is actually the well-intentioned part that does that to spare the pain that the consciousness would have. Uh, in feeling these. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you got it. And then because despite our manager's best efforts, exiles still get triggered, there's another set of parts that go into action immediately to find a way to contain the fire of, of emotion or to dissociate the person from it and let the fire burn itself out. And so we call those firefighters. And they tend to be the the reactive, impulsive, frantic parts that 
characterize things like addiction and uh, uh, dissociation and, you know, anything that is impu- an impulsive reaction mm-hmm. to getting triggered uh, with any of the the worthlessness that the exiles carry. And so again here the ambiguity or the, the double meaning of the term is how um, you know we tend to think of addiction as something that's really bad or any of, the, of these other impulsive, compulsive behaviors. But uh, in, the, in this context, they are really the heroes who are saving people, fighting the, fighting the fire. Yeah, exactly. That's why I use the term because it, it counters the negative negative connotation that most people have for these kinds of fires. So so that's the system in a nutshell and how it relates to body uh, some years ago actually in the fairly early days of the work maybe I would have to say in the late 80s I uh, I connected with Ron Kurtz and Greg Johansson of the Hokomi community mm-hmm. and began to uh, expand my purview in terms of of uh, involving the body in this work and and becoming more aware of how parts affect the body. And so since then, uh, the, the model has become much more of a body-focused one. And uh, in a number of different ways, I mean, first I borrowed from them the, the question that we always ask, which is, to ask the client as they focus on a part where they find it in their body, around the body. Mm-hmm. And most clients will find a space, a specific location where the part seems to be broadcasting from. And that then can serve as a kind of anchor point as we do the work. And so uh, many clients will will come back to that place in the body to, to listen to the part or actually notice how it's shifting in their body. And and many parts, when they go to witness, when they go to tell you their story, want to move the body in different ways. And so we encourage that. Or they might want to give body sensations uh, that relate to what happened when they were being hurt or the original place in the past they want to take the client to. So, um, so we do all of that. Yeah, so that that very, very strong anchoring in the body, in terms of body sensation, in terms of uh, uh, locating that part in a specific area of the body, and coming back to it as you work uh, on the part. Yeah, and also what I was saying, letting the part tell its story in part through the body. Okay. So uh, all these parts want to be witnessed in terms of what happened, and and so, we, like I said, in some clients, they're moving their bodies all the time through through the witnessing point. Uh, when I go to do my work, my body is doing all kinds of strange things, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, uh, just conveying how bad it was or the different sensations and emotions through the body. So we're, we're spending a lot of time, especially in the witnessing process, Encouraging clients to focus on all that. Right. So from the the very beginning of the work, um, it starts being embodied. It's yes. not. Yeah. And then, along the lines of that word embodied, what I what I found is that what I call self in many clients, especially trauma survivors, what I call self is not very embodied. 
it's uh, it turns out that when people are going to be traumatized, their parts try to protect the self by pushing it out of the body, which is why you get these reports of people watching themselves from the ceiling mm-hmm. or being in a kind of limbo state. And when self is not embodied, it can't lead very well. So a lot of the work is designed to help parts trust that it's safe to open space again in the body to allow self to come back in. And people will feel a very distinct shift in their bodies when that starts to happen. Yeah. So, um, again, uh, I want to just emphasize what I'm hearing is something that has to do with safety and trust and as a result of that, the integration that comes out from that. That's right. And so when I go to train therapists, much of our training is designed to help therapists hold this place of self when, when they're working with somebody because that seems to be crucial to, to this healing process. So a, a lot of the work is designed to help therapists get to know the, the way parts affect their bodies and to know when their body is full of parts and when when self is embodied and to know the difference and be able to tell very quickly by reading their body how much self is present. And then if it's not much present, then ask the parts to open more space. So um, that's another way that it's tied into body work. Mm-hmm. So that uh, there is um, uh, the work, the, the therapist is uh, trained to be conscious that the healing, the work itself is only going to occur to the extent that as a therapist they're present in their self as opposed to scattered in their parts and to recognize that presence in a body way. Yeah, and to notice in a body way when a part's taking over. So what would be an example of that, for instance, to noticing in a body way that a part is taking over? Well, for myself, uh, there are several different things that I check to see if I'm, if my parts are around, you know, there are common places I can check my body to see how much my parts are there versus myself. So, like, I've got these little managers that spend a lot of time on my forehead, and they, they strive and they push, and, and there's a distinct feeling in my forehead of, of tension and kind of pressure. Mm-hmm. And so before I go to work with somebody, I'll just check to see how much they're there, and and if I notice them in a big way, I'll spend a little time before I work with them just asking them to relax a little bit. Uh, I've got some other managers that spend time on my shoulders and so on. So it's sort of like that. I just do a kind of body scan mm-hmm. to see who's present. Yeah, so it comes from that familiarity you have with the parts and with how they're felt in your body so that um, the body scan or automatically gives you that information of what's happening. Exactly. And then other protectors have the ability to kind of close my heart up. So I'll often check how my heart's doing when I'm with somebody. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's sort of like that. Uh, IFS therapists learn both uh, what kind of parts are, what parts are doing to their bodies, what typical protectors are there, and then how to quickly get them to relax and let self come back in. Right. And so I want to maybe... Uh, just point out how there is um, 
a, a nature of having both very powerful images uh, like protectors, you know, firefighters uh, in that context or the parts that are identified by role, but also very simple down-to-earth body sensations that signal to you when it's happening or not. Exactly. And then the other thing, uh, the other way it ties into the body is that what we found is that parts have the ability to affect people's bodies in very profound ways for their own purposes. And so we've taken the model a lot lately into medical circles and worked a lot with physical problems, medical problems with it, and find that um, that you can often find the parts that are connected to these symptoms uh, and and once you heal them and unburden them, uh, the symptoms will abate a lot. We're actually in the middle of an outcome study out of Harvard with uh, 34 severe rheumatoid arthritis patients who are getting nine months of IFS therapy as uh, compared to a control group who get a kind of educational control. Mm-hmm. And we have the preliminary results of after first three months of it and the results are very exciting because we're getting substantial changes in the disease process itself, not just in the emotions associated with it. So, uh, and I'm not surprised by that because I've done a lot of work with autoimmune kinds of things very successfully with this work. So this is in the area where uh, there is already a sense of um, these illnesses being affected by psychosomatic factors and uh, very specifically how... IFS is acting on these uh, psychosomatic factors to affect the illness. Yeah, and what you find is you don't know in advance what parts are connected to any particular syndrome. So we just uh, get the client in this state of self, get curious about it, and go inside and ask. And sometimes you might ask the symptom itself, or you might have the client just ask generally if there are parts in there that that know anything about the symptoms or are involved in it. And uh, you'd be amazed at, at the kind of answers you get to that. And and sometimes it's an exile mm-hmm. trying to get its story heard, you know, and because it because the person keeps pushing it back, it has no choice but to try and get the person's attention through the body somehow. Some Sometimes, though, it's... It's a firefighter punishing the person for going close to the exiles or punishing the person for taking some risk that they don't think they should do or is polarized with some other part and is punishing the person to try and get them away from that. And sometimes it's a manager doing, finding a way to try and numb the body or, or control it in some way. Or <clears throat> there are some managers who want to... Um, sabotage your ability to do things and will give you some kind of symptom for that reason. Mm. So it's not it's not a, a, a simple relationship of this is or this is what managers do. It's actually it's the conflict itself that's creating it. Not yeah, it, it could be the conflict between parts that creates it. Yes. I, the answer is yes. Uh, and and as I say different parts will affect in different ways and we don't ever presume what's going on, the good news is that all you need to do is help clients 
focus inside and ask some of these questions and the answers will come. So, you know, you said uh, in something like that study on rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you're asking the client the part. Uh, I'm curious about what stage this is happening. Is there a long time of creating some sense of trust through more conventional work with the client before you're able to ask these questions? Is this something that comes early on in the work? But varies uh, across client. So um, none of these RA patients knew anything about IFS when they joined the study. And uh, so, as I say, after three months of work, we're getting these very dramatic results. So it didn't take too long to, mm -hmm. to go inside and focus. And and much of the, most of these people, uh, that's the last place they want to be. Most of them, because of the pain they've suffered for so long, are very much out of their bodies and don't want to spend any time listening to their bodies. Mm. So in that sense, it's a kind of hard sell. They have these very stoic parts. But um, they're also very interested in in getting some help and and having less pain. So, so anyway, uh, the answer, I guess, is no. It doesn't take a huge long time for most in most situations to convince people to start to do this work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's actually possible to convince exactly those people who have been focusing their efforts on getting out of their body to be able to listen to the body. And yeah, like I, like I say, it's a kind of hard sell in the beginning. And what's really helped is that uh, in addition to individual work, these people are each getting uh, some group work with other arthritis patients and so as one of them does the work then the others see that there might be some value in it mm -hmm. and, and it's not as scary as they thought so that seems to help a lot too okay so Dick as we're coming toward the end of this conversation I want to see if there's something else that you might want to add to uh, to conclude this uh, let's see I think I covered most of what I had in mind. I, I, I want to emphasize um, my gratitude to the various teachers I've had that have made me much more body-focused in this work and, and uh, enriched the work a great deal so that it, it, is, uh, it is a very, in my mind, a very body-focused kind of psychotherapy. Mm. Thanks, Dick. Thank you, Serge. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.